0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. Let us take a moment right now and just ponder how incredibly unobvious it is for righteousness, tzedek, to be an attribute of an almighty God. We're so habituated to this idea that it's easy to forget how very, very not evident it is. Coming out of a political culture of dominance, war, conquest, coming out of a religious culture that explained the turbulence of the natural world in terms of the vying jurisdictions of local gods, coming from a people who lived on the beltway of the ancient world and who were getting perpetually run over. And yet, here we see them protesting the idea that might makes right and that asserting righteousness was something separate from power alone. And in the Isaiah passage, righteousness is not an abstract concept of goodness or blamelessness, but turns that righteousness outward. He is a God who saves, who reaches in, who intervenes. Despite current events, all appearances to the contrary, goes the prophecy, God possessed, wasn't God unless he possessed, was ultimately the only possessor of both strength. And righteousness, and He is a God who saves. The way the text is framed in Isaiah, it's presented as both a claim and a given, something true but not yet apparent to the world at large. Righteousness and strength, strength and righteousness. The judgment of the world, the ultimate judgment of God, is God's making good on that claim. The judgment of the world is something of a theme in all of our readings today, even our psalm. But as you'll note in our psalm, the judgment of God is presented here as an occasion for joy. It is something for which the very hills have been longing. And as I'm sure many of you know, um, judgment in the ancient world, judgment, justice, the bringing of righteousness into the real world was, at least for the little guy, something that was often in very short supply, something you desperately sought as leverage against the powerful, against abiding systemic abuse. It usually took a long time. Remember all of Christ's parables about poor widows, unjust judges, and slow, long-grinding, passive-aggressive battles just to be heard. Imagine what a case our poor, abused planet could lodge with God Almighty right about now. No wonder the very hills are longing. And yet, and yet, the judgment of the world is still a very uncomfortable idea for many of us who grew up in the shadow of an angry God or who find it so easy to believe that any figure of power or authority is automatically not going to approve of us because of who we are that of course we're going to fall short of any bar set for us because we always have and we always do. And maybe on an even deeper level, we share the tormented outrage of the secretary in G.K. Chesterton's Man who was Thursday. We wept, we fled in terror, the iron entered into our souls, and you are the peace of God. Oh, I can forgive God his anger, though it destroyed nations, but I cannot forgive him his peace. Another character a moment later demands, you are the law and you have never been broken, but is there a free soul alive that does not long to break you only because you have never been broken? The unpardonable sin of the supreme power is that it is supreme. I do not curse you for being cruel. I do not curse you though I might for being kind. I curse you for being safe. You sit in your chairs of throne of stone and you have never come down from them. You are the seven angels of heaven and you have had no troubles. Our passages today in Philippians and John argue that the cross represents a form, if not the final, then certainly the platonic form, the archetype of what God's judgment looks like. In it are encapsulated both God's righteousness and his strength. As Christians, we believe that when God's strength appeared in historical time, it took the form of a fragile, disposable human infant, the utter self-emptying of the word, and is taking on the form of a slave. And when God's righteousness appeared, it was amidst a systematic and thoroughgoing perversion of the mechanisms of human justice on an instrument of torture that was the Abu Ghraib or the Guantanamo of its time. It was so wrong it verges on black, black comedy. And it's so unexpected, so counterintuitive, well, so weak, that it's hard to believe, even for us, that a political prisoner crucified on an obscure hill in a dusty hill town in the back of beyond in the Roman Empire could actually change things. So let's consider some of your own mental furniture, most of which you probably take for granted. That we owe to Christianity that was not a part of the world before that political prisoner suffered and died on Golgotha. For start, humility as we understand it was not a virtue in the classical world. It took Christianity, Christ's form of a servant, to introduce the idea that the rich and the powerful were not necessarily also the morally superior that the poor, and the outcast, and the ordinary person might have something valuable to say. It's taken us 2,000 years to get our head around the concept, and you could argue we have a ways to go. Second, there is no real concept of redemptive suffering in the ancient world, or in classical thought, Um, or even really that good things come out of suffering, even if the suffering itself is evil. There's certainly no sense that the god or gods suffer for us. There are tortured figures like Prometheus and Marcius in Greek and Roman thought, but there isn't any sense that the suffering itself is healing or redemptive, just that it's what the gods do to you when you break the rules. You're closer, a little, with Isis and Osiris in Egyptian myth to the Christian idea, but even there, the suffering isn't exactly redemptive. Osiris is chopped up into little bits, not for our salvation, but because of mischief done by another god. We benefit, the Magic Nile floods, but it's not really done for us. So, you might say, the cross is a statement about God's righteousness vis-a-vis the world. That's certainly something. But is God's judgment merely a statement about his ultimate moral superiority over the world? Is the cross, dare we say it, righteousness without strength? The Jews' questions to Christ in our gospel passage today center around their conviction that once he came, the Messiah would remain forever. We probably gravitate more to the self-emptying of Christ and the form of a servant in the Philippians hymn than how it concludes, therefore, God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a claim there too, just as in the Isaiah passage. The claims that things are now different, changed, in the very bedrock of the universe, coded into its DNA. You can't see it yet. The grain of wheat is still very small and buried in the ground, but one day the claim will be made good. If you believe in that future change, that new order that the gospel heralds, then it begins to change things mysteriously in the present, like the yeast that works its way through the whole batch of dough, And the change that it produces in you and in me, if we let it, is as qualitatively total, different, as light and darkness. One thing the cross, both a symbol and an event in historical time, not an abstraction, but a real instrument of torture, one thing it has always suggested to people is a point of departure from within history. The message of the cross is that we now live in a world in which the principalities and powers, violence, injustice, betrayal, death, have been judged and continue in this world on sufferance only. The instrument of suffering and death becomes the promise that suffering and death are not the deepest truths there are. They cut deep, heaven knows they do, They cut so deep, but they are not the final word or the ultimate reality, because in Christ, God's righteousness and God's strength will, at the last, be a claim that is made good.